I thought I had seen this movie before. And I'm having this like Mandela effect about this movie. I don't know if you're familiar with that, yes. like that alternate Bernstein, Berenstein Bears kind of thing. Yeah, that you know, it's that that idea that like there's alternate universes and they bleed into ours sometimes, and you'll have false memories, or it's just a psychological phenomenon that makes you feel that way. But I'm having that about this movie, and I think what happened was I saw a few minutes of this movie. I saw the laser whip scene where Ralphie Face is killed. I saw that as a probably 10 or 11 year old kid. And then I went to bed or something. And then I think I dreamed about the movie because I have this whole concept of a movie about giant mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves that does not resemble this film. And I could have sworn to you, I could have written out like plot points for what I thought happened in the movie. And I watched this movie and I'm like, this is not the fucking movie I saw. You know what it was, right? What? You hacked your own brain, dude. You I hacked fucking hacked your brain. <laughs> Gibson hacked into your brain and he sent you a screenplay exactly how he wanted it to be. Friends, to episode 221 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss William Gibson's 1981 short story and Robert Longo's 1995 film of the same name, Johnny Mnemonic. All right, James, uh, here we are in our comfort zone with some cyberpunk. Uh, we have been doing some fairly highbrow uh, classic literature, and now it's time to get back down to the lowbrow uh, but high-tech uh, cyberpunk genre. And what a what a uh, experience this was for me, and I'm just really curious to know how it went for you, too. When you said lowbrow, like you meant low-tech, right? Like the, the group, <laughs> low-tech Like group. the low-tech, that's true, yeah. low-tech. Kind of went in excited to read the story knowing that it was sort of a, a big uh, touchstone for for cyberpunk in general and William Gibson being one of these figures that's that stands tall in that in that genre and then I think I've seen the movie before don't remember anything about it and I assumed it was gonna be awful and <laughs> I had I'm glad that you convinced me to watch it I had way more fun with the movie than I was expecting to uh, it's not good that's good to hear but it's not a good movie but I, <laughs> but I enjoyed it uh, and Keanu like it, it was so interesting to think of this in Keanu's like filmography so far right it's like post point break it's right after speed it's before yeah. the matrix and it's definitely way before if anybody's played cyberpunk 2077 but this is like the same story as Cyberpunk 2077 almost. And I was like seeing where Cyberpunk was was making references to Johnny Mnemonic, yeah. which I wasn't picking up on when I was playing through that game like a year or so ago. Uh, I was thinking more about like the Matrix Keanu, not, not Johnny Mnemonic. But uh, the short story itself was, uh, I think, really inventive, fun, a little dated, I think, obviously, because tech stuff tends to go pretty quickly. But... Still had some good foresight, you know, still had like the idea of like huge conglomerate corporations and government oversight and some of those other things that are only too real today. It was also funny just to think about with I'm, I'm not sure if the the story itself 
explicitly states that it's 2021 as well, but just thinking of the movie in terms of 2021 was so much fun. And uh, some of the, the like, I mean, like, there's, like, an iPhone reference, but it's, like, or at least an iPhone, like, prediction, but it's actually, like, eye, like, your eyes on your mm-hmm. face phone. And uh, the uh, I had the subtitles on on Netflix, and it said iPhone, like, I-P-H-O-N-E. And I was like, oh, shit, did they predict the iPhone? So a lot of fun stuff like that. They're using VR goggles, which is very popular right now, and it's only going to become more normal and to, like, manipulate the world and everything and uh, in, like, a really schlocky, weird 90s way. But it was fun. Uh, It sounds like you have a lot of thoughts. And and I similarly am, like, sort of bursting at the seams over here. I, I don't even know where to begin. So I guess I'll start with my experience so far with William Gibson, which is to say basically nothing other than things influenced by him, um, which is a lot of stuff. But as far as like actually reading his words, um, I've read selections of Neuromancer that that were like for like classes and stuff, but I've never actually read the novel. And I've never read this story or any other short story by him. And I was really excited to get to him. And that's one of the reasons why I suggested we do it, even though no one's like clamoring for a Johnny Mnemonic uh, adaptation uh, episode, but you know, maybe they are. I don't know. Hopefully, I don't, it's more present than you would think, though. Like, it's got more. Yeah. Well, last year was like Johnny Mnemonic Day, and we missed it by a year <laughs> and some change. But uh, yeah, that would have been the good time to do it. But oh well. <laughs> uh, we're doing it now. And anyway, so I I, uh, I went out and picked up the the collection, and I read the story, and um, I I was taken with it. I really liked his uh, lean stylish sort of gritty prose he he does the thing where he throws a lot of terms at you that he's coined but a lot of them either are actual sort of uh counterculture terminology that he picked up um or it's like a a a blend of that and some sort of modern twist that he's putting on it um, so, so you're getting sort of surrounded by a bunch of terminology, almost like reading a secondary world fantasy, right? Where you're getting all this other stuff and it's just laid out there and not explained. And because we're reading a short story, that's kind of what you have to do by design because you don't have time to explain everything. And instead you just create a world. And, um, it makes a lot of sense when I read later that Johnny Mnemonic and um, I think Burning Chrome and one other story uh, in this collection are sort of the foundation that he would continue when he made Neuromancer. And that is all part of his sprawl series, I guess. And um, it was it was set in the same world, I believe. And in fact, Molly Millions is a major character in Neuromancer, and she shows up here in Johnny Mnemonic. I actually did read that um, the film itself also pulls from other William Gibson stories to sort of turn it into this amalgamation. Like I, uh, one of his novels, Virtual Light, supposedly there's like some plot points or something that, that this film took. And that makes sense. And I did see that William Gibson was credited as a screenwriter right. for the movie. We'll have to talk about that. In yeah, a I'm going to be really yeah. curious to talk to you about that. Because I, I was really taken with it. I thought his his dialogue was snappy. I thought it was inventive. The action was sort of surprising and visceral. Um, everything about it was appealing to me. I, I like this kind of stuff. Um, you know, of course, it's, it's dated a little bit in certain ways, but um, he isn't a scientist. And, and I was reading about this. Like, he's an English guy, an English major um, who's writing science fiction and is is 
widely considered one of the you know forefathers of 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 this genre, so this subgenre, um, and yet he doesn't have that science background. And I think because of that, some of the tech is going to feel very speculative and and not grounded in reality. And I think especially when he gets whenever he gets crunchy with numbers and talks starts talking about like storage amounts, mm-hmm. especially in the movie later, but even even here in the story. Um, it's it doesn't hold up, I think, because it it's so small, which is so funny, right? Like it's so a- astronomically small compared to how much storage we are able to do today. Um, it's it's laughably so. But I think you're touching on the things that make his work really interesting too. Not only is his prose, I think, very notable, but like, uh, the the late capitalism themes, right? Like you have these mega corps, you have um these these gangs and stuff that we've seen in many other places like you said in video games and stuff it's kind of become an aesthetic more than anything else these days and and i think a lot of people lament the fact that a lot of the teeth of the genre have been have been sort of filed away and now all we have left is the aesthetics um whereas this is like a this is a critique of late capitalism i think this is this is like a cautionary tale in a way of what society could become if certain forces were to run rampant. And um, I think that is where cyberpunk remains to be very interesting to me. As much as I like the aesthetic as anyone else, you know, as much as anyone else, I could, that you have to have a purpose behind it. I think this has a lot to do with, like we're talking about the corporations, but if you think of something like Blade Runner, that's like talking about early AI and like what it yep. means to, and you know, uh, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep from Philip K. Dick, like it's talking about like what it means for a machine to be alive, what is life, all these other things. Um, so I think there are like other avenues that people explore within this space um, yeah. that keep it fresh. Like And, and like Cyberpunk, I'm going to m- mention 20, Cyberpunk 2077 a few times because it's sort of the most recent big cyberpunk thing that i think a lot of people touched into unfortunately the game had like a really bad launch but i still i really enjoyed the game i think that once they patched a lot of the things it it made for like a really fun experience and especially understood the cyberpunk world and the aesthetic like coming from a noir background like those kinds of the underbelly of society and like the the gap between the the super rich and the and everybody else who has to just fucking barely solder together something that's like some sort of cybernetic enhancement and stuff. Yeah. And then the the uber rich have these like crazy uh, enhancements. So, I mean, abs- so much of that is drawn directly from oh, from William Gibson's for work. Sure. And yeah. it, it was so funny. I think I even sent you this. I, th- I sent you this when it happened. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't read it directly. But it's probably good because I don't want to call out some random person. But um, somebody, I, I think William Gibson tweeted some sort of like fairly soft criticism of cyberpunk 2077 when it came out and people were like coming after him on Twitter. And of course there's like reply guys who are talking about how he doesn't know what he's talking about. Like he doesn't know anything about cyberpunk. He doesn't oh, yeah, know. You like, did send that to me. That's yeah, hilarious. It's like people yeah. who have no idea, literally have no idea who they're talking to yeah, I love on that. Twitter. And it's just, it's one of those just face palm moments. Yeah. You're like, Oh my God. <laughs> I, that's just like the irony of something like that happening is like, it's worth the moment happening. You know, I'm just like, great. I'm glad that somebody gets a moment to be schooled in this dramatic way. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't even have to say anything because so many of his uh, followers were able to, to, to spot that one. Um, but anyway, I want to get back to this story before, and I don't want to get too into the movie because I really feel very differently about each of these pieces, you know, of, of things that we're talking about here. So let's focus in on the story a little bit more. Um, but 
before we get into the nitty gritties of that, I do want to make an announcement uh, for, for listeners, um, if you will bear with me for a moment. I am going to be at the Flights of Foundry convention, which is a virtual convention that is free for anyone to um, attend. Uh, you can give an optional donation if you like. Um, and at that convention, I am going to be moderating a panel called Writing Non-Human Beings, and that's going to be at 8 p.m. Pacific time, 11 p.m. Eastern, on Saturday the 9th. So when this comes out, it'll be this that coming Saturday. Um, I'm excited for this panel. I'll be with a few other authors, and we'll be talking about, you know, writing non-human beings. The story that I have coming out in Reckoning this year features a non-human protagonist, and um, I think that's why I'm on this panel, and I'm excited to do that. And if you're interested in my writing, I'll be having my own reading session on Sunday at the same time. So Sunday at 8 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Eastern, I will be having a 50-minute reading session, which I'm going to read my story from Reckoning, but then I, I also might read from my work-in-progress novel, which uh, has some cyberpunk influence to it. And we're going to talk about some ways where I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe some similarities between what I'm writing and what I was reading, um, considering I've never read Gibson before. Um, and you know what I mean? That That's something that is not out. And, uh, you know, it, it would be really cool if you wanted to come see early stage stuff for, for a novel that I'm hoping will be coming out in the next few years. Um, so, yeah, please come to that. I would love to have a few people at the reading, at least so that I'm not reading to myself. <laughs> it would be awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. man. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, so uh, do we actually? You know what? Before we get into that, I think we got to talk about William Gibson because he's a very important person in science fiction, and I didn't know a lot about him. Um, been doing some research, and he's very interesting. So, William Ford Gibson is an American Canadian writer and essayist widely credited with pioneering the science fiction subgenre cyberpunk. Beginning his writing career in the late 1970s, his early works were noir near-future stories that explored the effects of technology, cybernetics, and computer networks on humans, a combination of, quote, low-life and high-tech, and helped to create the iconography of the information age before the ubiquity of the internet in the 1990s. Gibson coined the term cyberspace for widespread interconnected digital technology in his short story Burning Chrome, which is in that collection, and later popularized the concept in his acclaimed debut novel, Neuromancer. These early works of Gibson's have been credi credited with renovating science fiction literature of the 1980s. So he is a major, like, if you talk about science fiction of the 1980s, you have to talk about William Gibson. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the idea that he coined the term t cyberspace, I think, is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. It's so interesting because, like, his, his version of cyberpunk in comparison to what Philip K. Dick maybe was doing. Like, Philip K. Dick was more interested in, like, He's the He's kind AIs. of pre-cyberpunk. He's, it, it's, it, you know, it's like, you could see a lot of the groundwork there, but what actually makes, in retrospect, it looks a lot more cyberpunk because of the adaptation, Blade Runner. And because of the influence of the 80s of maybe some of Gibson's work on the filmmakers. We'll talk about it. So it's, I think the inter there's an interesting thing between Blade Runner and him. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. I did just want to mention that his specifically with this story uh, is very interested in like the internet. The early, you know, jumping into like what the internet was going to do and what it could do. Yeah. 81. Talking about the internet, which is like, it was very like cutting. I mean, late 70s, they were just starting to come up with the idea of interconnectivity between computers. And he was starting to extrapolate out on the effects that it was going to have on society already. So in 1999, The Guardian described Gibson as, quote, the probably the most important novelist of the past two decades 
while the Sydney Morning Herald called him the noir prophet of cyberpunk. Throughout his career, Gibson has written more than 20 short stories, 12 critically acclaimed novels, contributed articles to ma several major publications, and collaborated extensively with performance artists, filmmakers, and musicians. His work has been cited as influencing a variety of disciplines, academia, design, film, literature, music, cyberculture, and technology. So that's just uh, touching a little bit on his influence. Gibson grew up in a monoculture he found, quote, highly problematic, consciously rejected religion, and took refuge in reading science fiction, as well as writers such as Burroughs and Henry Miller. Uh, on the SAT t exams, he scored 148 out of 150 in the written section, but a 5 out of 150 in mathematics. Wow. Uh, after the death of his mother when he was 18, Gibson left school without graduating and became isolated for a long time, traveling to California and Europe and immersing himself in the counterculture. In 1967, he elected to move to Canada in order to avoid the Vietnam draft. At his draft hearing, he honestly informed interviewers that his intention in life was to sample every narcotic, narcotic substance in existence. Gibson has observed that he, quote, did not literally evade the draft as they never bothered drafting me. After the hearing, he went home and purchased a bus ticket to Toronto and left a week or two later. In the biographical documentary No Maps for These Territories, Gibson said that his decision was motivated less by conscientious objection than by a desire to, quote, sleep with hippie chicks and indulge in hashish. <laughs> um, <laughs> after weeks of nominal homelessness, Gibson was hired as the manager of Toronto's first head shop, a retailer of drug paraphernalia. He found the city's community of American draft dodgers unbearable owing to the prevalence of clinical depression, suicide, and hardcore substance abuse. He appeared during the Summer of Love in 1967 in a newsreel about hippie subculture in Yorkville, Toronto, for which he was paid $500. Aside from a brief riot-torn spell in the District of Columbia, Gibson spent the rest of the 1960s in Toronto, where he met his wife. The couple married and settled in Vancouver, British Columbia in 1972. He then enrolled at the University of British Columbia, earning a desultory bachelor's degree in English in 1977. Through studying English literature, he was exposed to a wider range of fiction than he would have read otherwise, something he credits with giving him ideas inaccessible within the culture of science fiction, including an awareness of postmodernity. It was at UBC that he attended his first course in science fiction, taught by Susan Wood, and at the end of which he was encouraged to write his first short story, Fragments of a Hologram Rose, which I believe is in this in, the, in this collection. So yeah, he uh, was known for talking about how hard science fiction novels of the time uh, he read as, as fascist literature. Um, he was this counterculture figure, right? Like he, he was a punk guy. Um, and he, during this period, he worked various jobs, including a three-year stint as a teaching assistant on a film history course. Gibson would meet some other authors, including Bruce Sterling, that he became lifelong friends with, and, and they sort of founded this. They're, they're also some of the founders of this cyberpunk movement. And uh, at, a, at a convention in 1981, he had a reading where he read Burning Chrome, the first cyberspace short story, to an audience of four people. And later stated that Sterling, quote, completely got it. It was his new friend. So he made a new friend with a guy who showed up at his reading of four people and got the story, um, which I think is pretty funny, especially considering I'm going to be doing my first reading here soon. And I don't expect that there's going to be too many people there, but maybe I'll be surprised. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's cool that like, you know, it's cool to find a community. I like that turning your nose up at maybe 
like a military look at sci-fi, which was probably the norm for the time. And, you know, him being counterculture and dodging the draft and some of those other things, he was like, I want science fiction that explores something else. So to see that, you know, to see him writing the things he wanted to see in, in science fiction is really cool. So I want to touch a little bit on Neuromancer, even though that's not what we're covering, but it is his most famous work and we might not ever get the adaptation that I would love to get. So it's my chance to talk about it. Um, so he was given a year to complete uh, a commission by Terry Carr for an Ace Science Fiction Specials uh, novel, which was going to be his debut. Um, he undertook the actual writing out of, quote, a blind animal terror at the obligation to write an entire novel, a feat which he felt he was four or five years away from. After viewing the first 20 minutes of the landmark cyberpunk film Blade Runner, 1982, which was released when Gibson had written a third of the novel, he, quote, figured Neuromancer was sunk, done for. Everyone would assume I'd copped my visual texture from this astonishingly, astonishingly fine-looking film. He rewrote the first two-thirds of the book 12 times, feared losing the reader's attention, and was convinced that he would be, quote, permanently shamed following its publication. Yet what resulted was a major imaginative leap forward in the for the first-time novelist. Neuromancer's release was not greeted with fanfare, but it hit a cultural nerve. Quickly becoming an underground word-of-mouth hit, it became the first winner of one sci-fi, quote, triple crown, both Nebula and Hugo Awards as the year's best novel and the Philip K. Dick Award as the best paperback original eventually selling more than 6.5 million copies worldwide. So that ended up being the thing that put him on, put him on the map. Before that, he wasn't a very well-known writer. Yeah, very interesting to think of him potentially starting a movement, then viewing a movie that was influenced by the movement also that he was sort of in. Yeah. And then he breaks out after the film releases with something like Neuromancer as his feature as his uh novel debut. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a scary thought, too. Like, every writer fears this, right? That you're writing a novel, and you're almost done with it, and then you see a movie, and it's, like, so similar, and you're like, fuck, now it's going to be viewed as unoriginal, and I'm a hack, and everyone's going to hate it. Well, especially if it's massive. Uh, although, I guess Blade Runner wasn't massive at first. So, yeah. you know, he had that going for him. If it was, yeah. like, the biggest movie of the past 10 years, like, he would have probably not released it. I don't know. There's no way he wasn't influenced by Blade Runner then. In, in terms of writing Neuromancer. Right. He had written two thirds he had written two thirds of it or three fourths of it or whatever, and then it came out and he was like, Oh fuck, and he like kinda rewrote it. So yeah, he was influenced and he was kind of in dialogue with it. Yeah, it's either influence and dialogue with or or a reaction to. But he had written these stories like the one we're talking about a few years before. And is it possible that those in influenced Blade Runner? In a, you know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I think it is possible, yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of it's snaking its own tail, influencing each other. This movement was coming out, plus all the stuff that was going on in Japan. You know, there was a lot of this. This movement started coming about with the dawn of technology and, and information technology, especially. Yeah, we talk about people sort of having the same ideas because of society yeah. all at the same time. We just talked about that, I feel like, last week. So I, I found a few other notes here that I just want to touch on just because I think it's interesting. Um, in the late 1980s, he wrote an early version of Alien 3, a uh, few elements of which survived the final version. <laughs> Well, not to mention Fincher had his name removed from that film. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, apparently that's not whatever he wrote was not like the final version. But in 2018 to 2019, Dark, Hor Dark Horse Comics released a five part adaptation of his Alien 3 script. So it is out there now. And Audible released an audio drama of the script adapted by Dirk Maggs and Michael Bain and Lance Hendrickson reprising their roles from the movie. I'm going to have to go look to make sure, but I'm pretty sure I own issue number one of that run. Really? That's cool. Yeah. 
pretty certain. Um, so he also wrote a bunch of uh, novels more recently. He had another trilogy that came out at post 9-11 that was set in contemporary times, and he actually hit the bestseller list for the first time. Um, and uh, it, it kind of put him on the national map in a different way to like a broader audience. And then he has returned to writing more um, sci-fi recently in the last few novels I read. I haven't read any of them. Like I said, this is my first time actually reading his stuff, but I think that's that's pretty interesting. And we got to talk about The Matrix. So the film The Matrix drew inspiration for its title, characters, and story elements from the Sprawl trilogy. The characters of Neo and Trinity in The Matrix are similar to Bobby Newmark in Count Zero and Molly, Millions, in Johnny Mnemonic. Like Turner, the protagonist of Gibson's Count Zero, characters in The Matrix download instructions to fly a helicopter and to know Kung Fu, respectively, directly into their heads. And both Neuromancer and The Matrix feature artificial intelligences which strive to free themselves from human control. Um, he also, I, I think, I don't know if he coined the term, but he used the term The Matrix to talk about like a virtual space where consciousness could go and, and live. So heavily influenced The Matrix. That's why some people say maybe we won't get Neuromancer because so it, it's kind of the thing where like if Neuromancer comes out now, it's going to look like it's just rehashing all these other ideas that are actually copying it. So John Carter is what you're saying. <laughs> when yeah. John Carter came out, everybody was like, oh, it's Avatar, it's Star Wars, it's this, it's that. But <laughs> Princess of Mars came out, which influenced all of those things. Right. Yeah, I love that you're talking about how he was an artist outside of his writing and how he like came into different different sort of mediums. Because Robert Longo, who directed this film, it, this is the only film he ever directed. And oh, wow. uh, and he, he's known more for his like art, like art gallery art and things like that. So huh. they I think they're friends. And it, originally they intended for this film to be like an art film, small budget. They wanted to get like one point five million dollars. And then be, in, in, they couldn't get one point five million. And somehow like the rights were being bought and things were happening. And it turned into a 30 million dollar like blockbuster film. Oh, my gosh. I'm so curious about that. But real quick, one last thing I want to touch on. He wrote Neuromancer on a 1927 olive green Hermes portable typewriter, which Gibson described as the kind of thing Hemingway would have used in the field. By 1988, he used an Apple LLC and Apple works to write with a modem. Uh, but in until 1996, Gibson did not have an email address, a lack he explained at the time to have, to have been motivated by a desire to avoid correspondence. Um, his first exposure to a website came writing Adoro when a web developer built one for Gibson. In 2007, he said, quote, I have a 2005 PowerBook G4, a gig of memory, and a wireless router. That's it. I'm anything but an early adopter generally. In fact, I've never really been very interested in computers themselves. I don't watch them. I watch how people behave around them. That's becoming more difficult to do because everything is around them. So he's not like a tech guy. Which I think is interesting, right? Like he's not he's not like the cutting edge of tech, you know. Uh, he's writing on a he's writing on a typewriter, and he's writing all these cyberpunk stories. Um, I always if you imagine him writing on some like old eighties computer, but he's not. Um, it's fascinating. It's crazy, and uh, this is getting into some film stuff, but it's still talking about William Gibson. So I have to say here, they sent William Gibson out to field questions about some of these, like so Sony sent him out to start fielding questions about a lot of the stuff that went on with the film and and sort of like his take on this and video games that, and things that they were releasing yeah, about this. not a video game and, player. <laughs> and yeah, so the habitually reclusive novelists who despite creating in, in cyberspace one of the core metaphors for the internet age had never personally been on the internet. 
liken the experience to taking a shower with a raincoat on and trying to do philosophy in Morse code. So wild that he was able to have the success and be as sort of prescient as he as he was without interfacing with the technology itself very much at all, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, I can't believe it. It's crazy. Yeah. And this is when the movie came out in 95. Yeah, which was still very early days of internet. Right, but it's like, you know, how much longer after he wrote the story? Right, right. Yeah, 14 years. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to read the first paragraph of summary, and then we can actually talk about the meat of the story here. So Johnny Mnemonic is a data trafficker who has undergone cybernetic surgery to have a data storage system implanted in his head, allowing him to store digital data too sensitive to risk transmission on computer networks. He makes a modest living in the sprawl by physically transporting sensitive information. Johnny has arranged to meet with his customer, Ralphie Face, at the Drome Bar. Ralphie is overdue to retrieve the hundreds of megabytes of data he has stored in Johnny's head. To add to his troubles, Johnny has learned that Ralphie has placed a contract on him. Johnny finds Ralphie at his usual table, accompanied by his bodyguard, Lewis. Johnny threatens them with a sawed-off shotgun in his bag, but Lewis incapacitates him with a neural disruption device hidden under the table. Ralphie reveals that the data was, unknown to him at the time, stolen from the Yakuza, who are very interested in ensuring it is not revealed. Okay, so we're about to get the introduction of Molly, but I just want to stop here. I want to get your your impressions of his writing style and and the story here in the first opening few pages. I, it kind of threw us into this like tense situation. He had the shotgun in the bag. I thought it was the fir- one of the first things he talks about is his Adidas shoes, and I thought that like you know to make the bold choice to have like branded materials in your story. I mean, it, it's a grounding thing, and I think for the time it definitely worked. You know, the stick up scene where he's like got the shotgun in the bag feels very much like. A, like a gangster or, or a noir film uh, beginning, that the sort of like things that are coming from it, uh, it, it, you know, it's doing all the things it's trying to do. And I think doing them well, like you talked about before, his prose is very like to the point. It fits in with with like the gruffness of the environment and sort of, sort of how short some of the people can be temper wise. Well, let me just read a little bit of it just so I think people can get a feel. So this is when he's first walking into the drone, which is the bar. So, the drome is a single, narrow space with a bar down one side and tables along the other, thick with pimps and handlers and an arcane array of dealers. The magnetic dog sisters were on the door that night, and I didn't relish trying to get out past them if things didn't work out. They were two meters tall and thin as greyhounds. One was black and the other white, but aside from that, they were nearly identical as cosmetic surgery could make them. They'd been lovers for years and were bad news in a tussle. I was never quite sure which one had originally been male. I, it's interesting there's trans characters. That's good. I'm not sure if that's like the best way to handle it. But again, 1981. What what really stood out to me is like the you know the the comparison to greyhounds. How how effort, effortlessly he he sets up the situation. These characters drops a few details about them, and it's very evocative, right? Like I feel like I'm there. I can feel the sort of griminess of this bar. Um, I love that stuff and. Um, I, I don't know. It's inspiring. I, I, I'm, I'm taken with it. Sets up like how fantastical it can be too. Like this idea of like he starts setting up like these animals seeming like he people have like animalistic names and things like that. Yeah. Well, and and implants and modifications and all this like uh, biotech and stuff. Which okay, I'm writing a novel that uh, has a lot of similar kind of stuff in it. Um, it's an underwater no- sci-fi novel, but it has elements of cyberpunk in it. And um, we're about to talk about the introduction of Molly. So let me let me get into that because I had a I had an interesting moment. So 
Johnny is rescued by Molly Millions, a, quote, razor girl who has undergone extensive body modifications, most notably razor-sharp blades under her fingers. She joins the action at the table looking for a job. When Lewis tries to attack her, she cuts his wrist tendons and takes the incapacitating controlling device from him. Ralphie offers to pay her, but she turns off the device and frees Johnny. Johnny and Molly take Ralphie as they exit the bar, but a Yakuza assassin waiting outside cuts Ralphie to pieces with a monomolecular wire hidden in a prosthetic thumb. Johnny fires his shotgun at the assassin, but misses due to the man's enhanced reflexes. Molly is delighted to be facing another professional. Johnny decides that the only way to save himself from the same fate as Ralphie is to get the data out of his head, which can be done only by using a squid to retrieve the password. Molly takes him to an amusement park to meet Jones, a cybernetically enhanced dolphin, retired from the Navy service. Molly trades him drugs in exchange for finding the password. Johnny then has Molly read it out so he can upload the snippet to a Yakuza communication satellite and threaten to release the rest unless Johnny is left alone. Okay, so moving through a lot of plot there really quickly, but... We have to talk about the dolphin immediately because it's one of the most batshit crazy and sad (laughs) things I've read in a story. Like, really sad because you're like... You know, they, they like drugged up dolphins and like people, they put people into dolphins and then drugged them up and got them addicted and then forced them to go on these missions. And that's that's how they they basically I think the comment is made that like, how else do you get people to like listen to you or fight for you? You motivate them with drugs. Like if yeah. they're addicted, you motivate them with the drugs. Yeah. This is coming off of MK Ultra stuff that was going on in the six, like late 60s, 70s um, and, and, and beyond. And I think that. I feel like that was influencing Gibson here where he's talking about how, which we've come to find out as a lot of this stuff is true about the government experimenting with drugs and how they can be used to control people and, you know, all kinds of shady shit. Um, I think that's kind of what he's touching on here. Yeah, it's funny that like someone who wants to try every narcotic uh, known to man or whatever is, I mean, of course, you'd be invested in drug related you know, just thinking about that stuff a lot. So he's thinking about it. He's thinking about the government. Well, we talked about it with Ken Kesey. Like he went and he volunteered at a place where he got to use LSD and it was part of a government run test on LSD. And he became so obsessed with it. It became like a defining thing in his life. And, you know, it, it was this weird thing where the government was developing it as a weapon potentially. And then at the same time, it was getting out to the counterculture who was the antithesis of everything that they wanted from control. It was like, it, it, and it spawned this sort of, you know, hippie revolution at the same time. Uh, it's it's a huge topic, honestly, that we barely touch on. But yeah. It sounds like Gibson was also a part of that. It was, I mean, he definitely was growing up in that time and was in, was influenced by those writers. Um, you know, a lot of, I think I saw Jack Kerouac listed as one of his influence. So a lot of the, the people of that time. Um, and he's following that up, right? Yeah, but you mentioned you wanted to talk about Molly. Yeah, so Molly Millions has m- these these mirrored glasses that it appears at first. And then um, <laughs> uh, Johnny realizes that they are actually uh, like fused to her face and they kind of encase her eye sockets. I literally have a character in my book who has eye encasement glass over her eyes. Um, one of my main characters did not know that that was a thing in this book well obviously you know what i mean like i i am almost done with my novel i am like in the final phases of revising and getting it ready for submission and i'm like this seems now like she is a molly millions you know what i mean like maybe that connection is so direct now and it's so funny that i've i've never read this and i did not know that detail at all it's not in the movie yeah so it's just bizarre 
And uh, I'm putting it out there right now. Did not know that that was a thing. <laughs> Didn't copy. But I guess it I think is. yours makes more sense, though, too, right? So if if it's underwater, the idea of wanting well, to have... Well, yeah, that, that's why it's kind of like having goggles, right? Yeah. But anyway, I kind of blew my mind. I was like, holy shit. So, yeah, we'll see if that survives, you know, the process and ends up being in the book. I think it will. But um, it's just funny when you see stuff like that. Talking about, like, that parallel stuff and, like, you know, if Gibson can see Blade Runner and not completely throw out Neuromancer... Yeah. Uh, then, you know, I guess stick, I stick with my, my guns, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. I mean, uh, like, it's like when you start thinking about things you can do to your body, enhancements and things yeah. like that, like that's kind of co- something like that is, you know, you can see the, the, the lines of how you guys came up with something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, removed from each other. Yeah. Apparently, I, I thought some similar things. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, this this part, I like I love the description of when Ralphie gets he like explodes is how it's kind of described. And it's like mm-hmm. he, he got cut up by this by this monomolecular wire. And like it's not really like described super in depth, like what that is. But you get the idea that a monomolecule width wire would be just insanely sharp. Right. And that's what we end up seeing later in this in this movie. Um, but here, yeah, him getting sliced apart with it was, was, uh, uh definitely a moment I'm g- that's going to stick with me because that the way it was described, I thought it was really visceral. Um, and then, and then this leads to this, to this fight. Uh, let me read the final paragraph here and then we can get into the movie, which I know we have a lot to talk about there. So to deal with the Yakuza assassin who is still following them, Molly leads Johnny to the low techs, a group of anti-technology outcasts who live in a suspended hideout near the top of a geodesic dome covering the sprawl. The low techs allow the assassin to climb up so she can face him on the killing floor, a sprung floor arena wired to synthesizers and amplifiers. Molly eventually tricks him into slicing his own hand off with a thumb wire, and he jumps through a hole in the floor and falls to his death. The story closes nearly a year later with Johnny now living among the low techs. He and Molly have gone into business for themselves, using Jones's squid to retrieve traces of all the data he has ever carried and blackmailing former clients with it. Okay, so we get a kind of an epic showdown between Molly and the assassin. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, this is a weird way to end the story. Like, the main character watches another character fight another character. Like, and and, and that's kind of like the the finale right of the story um but it's well done and it's cool and and this weird killing floor that's like suspended and makes music yeah. while it's being fought on was it was a neat idea i wanted to mention you talked about the world a little bit but the world is so like you said well realized and and unique um i felt like i could see the location like this area that they climbed up to in this mall that's another thing, right? Like late stage capitalism. Yeah. Th- these abandoned malls and they're building like g- giant structures. And then we get to this weird, like you said, this weird thing with music, which is obviously like club scenes and things like that tend to be seen in, in cyberpunk stories. But this one was weird because it's almost like this this battling stage that's like ba- like a trampoline or like a speaker bumping is what I was thinking of. Yeah. When they're like jumping through the air. It was very speaker like, yeah. Yeah, and it's so bizarre. So fucking, like, why the hell do they have that? Why do they have, like, a... <laughs> and they're supposed to be low-tech, but they got this, like, synthesizer, like, thing. Yeah, a little strange. Yeah, it was um, cool, though. And then the, the guy, like, loses his hand and decides to just for... Because he couldn't deal with the sound anymore or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was, like, overwhelming him. Yeah, it seemed like... Um, yeah, it, it partly it was, like, he wanted to have, like, a moment of silence before death, I think it says in the, in the story. Um, I do want to read a, tra- uh, a paragraph here that I think is important for Johnny and why he's the main character, because I think it gets at the heart of what the Johnny mnemonic story is about. So he says, I held the useless shotgun under my jacket. 
Its hardness and heft were comforting, even though I had no more shells. And it came to me that I had no idea at all of what was really happening, or of what was supposed to happen. And that was the nature of my game, because I'd spent most of my life as a blind receptacle to be filled with other people's knowledge and then drained, spouting synthetic languages I'd never understand. A very technical boy, sure. Uh, so yeah, I think that's kind of getting at the heart of this idea that like, he's a vessel and he's got other people's data in his head that he puts out. And I think if you look at that as like a metaphor for what information and the internet can do to us, I think it, you can start to see why this story might have a bigger reach than you might think initially. Um, that it, it actually does say something kind of interesting, especially in 1981, about this kind of uh, tech and what it could do to people. Well, and, spe- you know, it's specifically talking about, like, low-tech people, I yeah. think, or, or people who are, like, casualties of the system. Yeah. That, you know, there's these warring factions, the Yakuza. Average people, perhaps you'd say. Yeah, government yeah. oversight, like, all of these things, they're just controlling everyone and like telling you what to think filling your head with bullshit and like that's you know at the end of the day like fine i I love that the story also ends with him finding a way to recover this stuff and then blackmail and use it against those things and sort of like an anti-establishment fuck yeah moment yeah i did read that apparently he reveals uh molly reveals the fate of johnny mnemonic in Neuromancer, and that he is eventually killed by like a yakuza ninja or something like a few years later after the events of the story so doesn't end up going so well for him, but <laughs> yeah, bummer, man. Uh, yeah, but cool. I mean, like, it, it was so. Is this the first story within the world? This sort of like sets off like a long journey. No, I think there was that other like that other hotel one was the first was for, one, but it's this one. It's this one, and then also that burning chrome. I think are the three that started to comprise this. I'm, and and I, yeah. I think this one maybe came out in the middle. I think burning chrome was eighty two. From what I was seeing, so well, I really like the world. I I think it's really fun, and and like it, it seems to me, you know, I'm not the the most well versed in the history of cyberpunk, but it seems to me that like a lot of the the things that I've seen in cyberpunk stories come from this, and like the names of the gangs and stuff. It was vi- like you you yeah. know like I mean, and the Asian influences that are in it, like that continue to be, which like I still don't know how I feel. Like I, some of that feels very fetishistic or or sort of exotic exoticizing and and also a little bit of like fear of the other right like there's there's sort of an inherent like agent culture coming into american culture and that's scary like there's a little bit of that feeling i don't know if that's what he was trying to say but i'm talking about the larger context of how that appears in cyberpunk and not to mention that like typically the bad guys are the yakuza the asian people and the good guy is a white guy and yes yeah so yeah. So I think that's it's I, I don't know if he's necessarily handling it the best way here. And I don't think it's fair to saddle him with all the like baggage of the entire genre when it comes to that stuff. But it is present here. And I think it's, you know, it becomes such a piece of cyberpunk, right? Like that Asian influence. And, and, and I mean, like, I, I think of like the neon signs and Deckard, like eating noodles at a shop and like how that's so evocative. And that makes me think of cyberpunk so, so quickly. Um, it is so baked into the genre at this point. Right. And it's like it, it's become such a part of it that to ignore it is is also not necessarily the right thing to do. So it's it, it can be very tricky. But uh, we got to start talking about this movie. Uh, this is we got so much to talk about still for this thing. And, and I'm going to turn it over to you now. I deliberately did not look up anything about the movie, even though I was dying to. I, I think I'm just going to start with the filmmaker, Robert Longo, is a pictures generation American artist, filmmaker, 
photographer and musician. Longo became first well-known in the 1980s for his Men in the Cities drawing and print series, which depict sharply dressed men and women writhing in contorted emotion. So like a little bit of that idea of, you know, the status quo, normalcy, that what society would have you do, and these people, you know, sharp dressed, walking through the city, and then they're what like... What was the name of that? I'm going to look it up. Men in the Cities. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's people in like suits, but they're kind of like flipping out. And you know what this makes me think of immediately is the way that uh, Johnny would react in the, in the film when he was having the like ha- attacks on his head. Um, and also how um, Jane reacted when she was having her sort of spasms. Um, right. Like the way that they shifted their bodies around actually kind of looks like this. That must be why Johnny Mnemonic is wearing that suit. Because w- that was a question I was going to have for you. Like, why was he wearing that suit? And this yeah. this might be the answer. The aesthetics of this picture that he, you know, that he was wanting to put into the movie. Probably. So, you know, interesting to think about. And then he also directed several music videos, including... New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle, Megadeth's Peace Cells, and wow. The One I Love by R.E.M. Some good songs. Yeah, he's responsible for the front covers of Glenn Bracca's the, the Ascension from 1981 and The Replacements 1985 album Tim. So again, we kind of talked about this last week with Autumn DeWild, photographer, music videos, some of these other elements, and then coming up to make this film. And I told you before, this is the only film he ever created. And I'll, I'll just give you a little spoiler. He wasn't happy with how the film came out in the end. Okay. Uh, I'm glad to, to hear that because I wasn't happy with it either. <laughs> yeah, there's studio oversight. Um, William Gibson was the screenwriter, but he says that the film doesn't represent what he wrote basically at all by the end. Okay. The final cut that they got. But interestingly enough, in 2021, Robert Longo created a new version of the movie entirely in black and white. As he told Screen Slate, when I saw the first when I saw the first version of the black and white film, I was just so happy. It was so much closer to what I imagined it to be, for sure. I knew turning it black and white would get it closer to where I imagined it from the very beginning. In my work, I take inspiration from films like Alphaville in from 1965 and La Jetée from 1962, things like that. A lot of black and white movies are not really black and white. They're kind of gray. The contrast is really pumped up now in this cut, so it's very black and white. Now, hmm. I think it's cool that he did a recut. I'm assuming he cut out some things he didn't like, put in, but I, I think so. overall... Because <laughs> there were some bad seats in here. I don't think you're going to be able to fix the movie just based on a new cut in black and white. I don't know, yeah. I'd be curious to watch at least a little of it. I don't know if I could watch the whole thing unless I it really feels very different. I would be, um, I mean, I'd definitely be interested. I'd watch the whole thing, but what I'm trying <laughs> to say is I don't think that it... Maybe, maybe that could be a bonus we could do. Yeah, if it's if it's even been released. But yeah, oh yeah, that's true. I don't know. So clearly I talked about before. He they wanted to go for an art film. They wanted something more abstract. Yeah. They wanted something uh that wasn't the norm and then they it became this like pretty normal blockbuster of the time. And yeah. uh with tons of effects and everything. And neither neither party was happy, the screenwriter wasn't happy, the filmmaker wasn't happy. I'm sure the studio I don't know that it made a ton of money, so I'm sure the studio wasn't super happy. So it's just a bummer to know that like this this material was kind of just treated as a, a standard action film. And I wonder if this kind of because we haven't gotten a lot of Gibson adaptations. The other one I was seeing was that Rose Hotel one that also apparently is not you know well received. I haven't seen it, um, but you know these two and I think they came out around the same time or within a few years of each other. And and then we haven't gotten this uh, this Neuromancer script. Apparently, has been kicked around Hollywood. 
time and again to where now apparently Tim Miller might be working on it, but that was as of like 2017. So it's been like five years since he said anything about it. So it's like, is it is anything happening with it anymore? I don't know. Yeah. The producers re-edited the film and, and made it more mainstream, and that's why it sort of ended up how it did. But apparently the Japanese release is said to be closer to the director's and Gibson's original vision. So huh. maybe a couple of bonus kind of things. If we could find a Japanese cut of the film, that would be wild. <laughs> yeah, uh, if there's a black and white wild. version, we could check that out. I was going to have to hit Gibson a little bit on this screenplay if if you because I was going I was waiting for you to tell me like how he felt about it, because if he was like, yeah, love it. It's my screenplay. It was great. Um, I was gonna be like, what? Because this this doesn't resemble the story. Like I, I was like, did he forget how to write here? Like so many of these lines are corny and they're, it's filled with these one liners, characters constantly saying each other's names to each other. And, and what and uh, writing is called, as you know, Bob dialogue. Um, and it's like. I am going to tell you something that you already know, and you're, I'm going to say your name to you, which you already know. Um, and it, it's it's all for the benefit of the audience because you're trying to tell them stuff. But there's a way to do that where it's subtle, and there's a way to do it where it's super obvious that's what you're doing, and that's what this movie does time and again. I, I totally agree with you. And uh, just to talk about Gibson's opinion on the film a little more, apparently it was he was very unhappy with what became of the adaptation of his story, and despite being credited as the sole screenwriter, he has insisted for years that it wasn't his screenplay that was ultimately produced. Okay. I mean, I believe it because I, I just don't know how a writer that has his clear talent was able to produce the dialogue of this ultimate film. It yeah. just, it did, th- those two things don't line up to me. And I know that they are, sli- you know, slightly different uh, mediums, slightly different uh, sorts of writing, but still. To me, it's also the tone, right? The tone of the film, the broadness of the film. like All over the place. I mean, I have lots of things I want to talk about when it comes to like criticisms of the movie. But but I just, uh, just <laughs> one, one other thing. I mentioned part of this before, but Sony realized early on that the potential for reaching their target demographic through internet marketing and its new technology division promoted the film with an online scavenger hunt offering $20,000 in prizes. Uh, one executive was quoted as remarking, we see the internet as turbocharged word of mouth. Instead of one person telling another person something good is happening, it's one person telling millions. Oh my gosh. Think about what happened with the matrix later though. Yeah. That same thing. The matrix, what is the matrix.com was massive. Right. And it was this big internet thing all about cyberpunk, like so influenced by his work. I even read that he like, didn't see the matrix for years because of that. Like he, I think he didn't want to but eventually he i think he was complimentary of it but like that has to sting right yeah yeah uh, apparently the and it had keanu in it right yeah <laughs> and we t- already talked about like the where he's at in his career at this point it's just wild to think about um the website facilitated for the film's website facilitated further cross promotion by selling sony issued johnny mnemonic merchandise such as hack your own brain t-shirt and pharmacom coffee cups and oh, I'm just great. like That's hearing about this and I'm like, you guys realize what this movie is about, right? In terms of yeah, corporations and stuff, yeah. like oh, it's my so gosh, fucking yeah. gross. Buy our merchandise. Yeah. yeah. Hack your own brain. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. So the first thing I want to say before uh, we get into it, I, um, I thought I had seen this movie before and I'm having this like Mandela effect about this movie. I don't know if you're familiar with that, yes. like 
that alternate Bernstein, Berenstein Bears kind of thing. Yeah, that you know, it's that that idea that like there's alternate universes and they bleed into ours sometimes, and you'll have false memories, or it's just a psychological phenomenon that makes you feel that way. But I'm having that about this movie, and I think what happened was I saw a few minutes of this movie. I saw the laser whip scene where Ralphie Face is killed. I saw that as a probably 10 or 11 year old kid. And then I went to bed or something. And then I think I dreamed about the movie because I have this whole concept of a movie about giant mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves that does not resemble this film. And I could have sworn to you, I could have written out like plot points for what I thought happened in the movie. And I watched this movie and I'm like, this is not the fucking movie I saw. You know what it was, right? What? You hacked your own brain, dude. You I hacked fucking hacked your brain. <laughs> Gibson hacked into your brain and he sent you a screenplay exactly how he wanted it to be. It's no, it's so weird, man. I, I, I honestly, I was like, I guess I haven't seen this movie because it was almost unrecognizable. If it wasn't for the fact that there is a laser whip that kills some people like I would have thought I completely imagined seeing this movie before because I, I knew nothing about it. Watching it again, I'm like, I don't remember anything. Yeah. It was so weird. I had a similar kind of thing, not not quite the dream thing and remembering all the plot points, but like I, I'm pretty certain I have seen this movie, but uh, just like ejected it from my, my memory. I, I think I saw it at a friend's house when I was like, very young yeah. and either didn't pay attention or whatever. I mean, you had to overwrite that part when you uploaded the data. Right. That's yeah. my childhood. I've limited space in there. <laughs> yeah. I had to fit 300 gigabytes in there, dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So getting into some of this plot here. In 2021, society is driven by a virtual internet, which has created a degenerate effect called nerve attenuation syndrome or NAS. Mega corporations control much of the world, intensifying the class hostility already created by NAS. Johnny is a mnemonic courier and his current job is for a group of scientists in Beijing. Johnny initially balks when he learns the data exceeds his memory capacity even with compression, but agrees given the large fee will be enough to cover the cost of the operation to remove the device. Johnny warns that he must have the data extracted within a few days or suffer psychological damage. The scientists encrypt the data with three random images from a television feed and start sending these images to the receiver in Newark, New Jersey, but they are attacked by the Yakuza led by Shinji before the images can be fully transmitted. Johnny escapes with a portion of the images, but is pursued by both the Yakuza as well as security forces for Pharmacon, one of the mega corporations run by Takahashi, both seeking the data he carries. Johnny starts witnessing brief images of a female projection of an artificial intelligence who attempts to aid Johnny, but he dismisses her. My first thing I did was I took a screenshot uh, of, of the opening. There's like a, a scrawl of exposition. Because, of course, that's a thing you can do in the 80s. This is what it says. Second decade of the 21st century. Corporations rule. The world is threatened by a new plague. NAS, nerve attenuation syndrome. Fatal. Epidemic. Its cause and cure unknown. Okay, so just to open... Those are the first couple lines of the scrawl. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> those bullet points. If it wasn't for the fact that it wasn't called COVID, it was like, yeah. damn. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, and that's about the end of uh, <laughs> of me being completely amazed by the prescience of this. Um, other than you know, you got video calls and stuff, but it wasn't like they were the first to do that. No, yeah, um, you know, there was there was lots of that in sci-fi. Yeah, um, it, it was pretty. I, when I was thinking about the disease thing, I was like, "Oof, this is yeah. a little scary." 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I saw him. He was walking and there was like rioters and they all have masks on and like they were fighting the police. And I'm like, this was supposed to be 2021. And like, well, I mean, and later on, they're talking about like the cure, obviously. And and I'm like thinking about how like I feel like there was a power struggle to get the the fucking vaccine out. You know what I mean? When I think well, about. Yeah. When well, I, not in the way that he predicted, though. No, it, not, he not was quite. predicting top down corruption, keeping it out of the hands of people, not bottom up. Um, you know, I don't think anyone predicted that there'd be so many people who would not want the cure. <laughs> but even so, I, I, I just had a feeling like my, the conspiracy theory side of me, which, you know, I don't like conspiracy theories, but just to go there for a second, this idea of, I mean, every now and then they're true. So it's hard to like completely write them all off. Right. Like, cause MK ultra for the longest time was a conspiracy theory until it was revealed that a lot of that shit really happened. Yeah. So the idea of a vaccine being created and, you know, there was some 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 company wanted to create it and then charge a fuckload of money or find a way to make it profitable. You know what I mean? Like those kinds of things like I mean, we're lucky that it didn't cost us hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get these vaccines. Yeah. So I want to ask you, like, we're not going to go through every scene. We don't have time. But I just want to ask you, like, I feel like this movie looks pretty bad. It's it's (laughs) it's just kind of ugly. And in a way that, like, I do not expect for a cyberpunk movie. I'm like, cyberpunk movies should look cool. They should be stylish. They should be sleek. They should have an aesthetic that is, like, consistent and and, and it has a feel to it and a texture. I felt like all of that is lacking in this movie. It, I thought it was, it looked ugly. It didn't seem to have any direction, like, as far as, like, aesthetically. It was just kind of all over the place. And I, I wanted to ask you, like, what, how does that happen? Like, wh- what what goes into a movie not, like, looking right? I don't know. Did you get that, too? Like, this movie doesn't look right. Yeah, no, I get that. I, and to me, there's a couple things that I, I just thinking about it now. It felt really cluttered anytime there was anything going on. There was, like, a lot in the frame, too much, dirty. Like, And I get, like, trying to make it dirty, but not in, like, a well-established way. Just, like, everything's, like... The crammed in the frame and the frame isn't the, com- the composition of the frame isn't very it doesn't flow it doesn't like tell a story through the frame with for you to like guide your eyes through um another thing that i always talk about is lighting i feel like the lighting was pretty pretty bland too bright it was yeah. really bright throughout and yeah this- it wasn't very dramatic yeah. there you want a lot of you want some contrast especially in a noir like a you know neo-noir when they're in the cyberpunk. club it's like fucking super bright like you could see everything way too much and you can see all this like they were making bizarre costuming choices and they're just like, I felt like there was like a spaghetti at the wall, you know, theory of like how we're going to design the look of this movie. Another thing that, that I think is really important is dramatic shots, like close ups and like really shallow depth of field for some shot. I feel like a lot of this movie was like in focus and it was just like, here's a frame, look at everything. It's cluttered. It's a mess. People are like center frame and it's not like composed well to where it like i said your eyes flow through and and you know using what they call like the bokeh effect is sort of like the perfect level of of separation between your subject and the the shallow depth of field behind and like i I can't remember a single shot that was that was using like it doesn't stick out in my mind of using like that sort of filmmaking technique one of the only scenes that i felt that actually looked kind of good was maybe the opening scene with giant mnemonic in the hotel room Okay. I feel like that had some interesting, like above the bed, like there was some some artistic shots in that room, and then like that all went away the longer the movie went on, and everything looked so ugly and just like it, it looked like people wearing costumes rather than people in a world wearing the clothing that they wear in that world. Yeah, and some of the time you could tell, like when they built a set, the sets kind of looked like shit, but when they're on location, it looked better. 
like some of the times when you they were in actual locations, I, I could tell, and I was like, okay, like you you know they would they would neon up something or put some signs up, and then it would it would look better. But anyway, this this story kind of starts before the other one, right? Like we're getting to see him get implanted with it, and he's like reacting to it, and he's free, you know. Well, goes we to the never know what what the data is in the story, and the the whole idea of it being the cure is a very important thing right. for this movie, yeah. Yeah, did you did you know pretty early on that it was the cure? Or was it not really a yeah. no? I actually I didn't I didn't no, know either. that because you know the story didn't that didn't happen in the story, so I was surprised. Um, I was just too busy like reacting to a lot of these faces. Like, okay, so I guess his name's Udo Udo Kier. Um, is the guy who plays uh, Ralphie, and that guy has such a like '80s face. Like, I don't know. I feel like I must have seen him in a ton of stuff in the '80s and '90s. Um, he's he's usually a bad guy. Um, and I thought it was an interesting casting for this guy who's called the face because he does have this really striking face. So I actually liked that casting. Um, we see Ice-T in this movie. We see Henry Rollins in this so movie. So many, yeah, bizarre. And then, of course, Dolph Lundgren, too. Dolph Lundgren? Oh, my God. We got to talk about that By, character. That was my favorite. <laughs> that, that made me fucking laugh hard. His character is insane. Unbelievable character. He's got this terrible wig. He's constantly just like, Jesus be with you, and like saying this shit. He's got the fucking knife. He's got the this crucifix knife with Jesus on it. If and shit. more stuff had been like him, I think this movie would have like gone on to be, you know, infamously bad, so bad it's good movie. Because that's the kind of stuff that is actually kind of enjoyable in retrospect because it's so ridiculous. It's fucking insane. And he's barely in the movie, and his name is on the poster. Of course, because he was. A, uh, he, I'm sure this was around the time of like whatever Rocky movie he was in. He's second. He's second build in the film. Like he's he's the second. You know, it's so funny to think that they are, they're like, let's get Dolph Lundgren to be this fucking crazy pastor or whatever. Like, I want to talk about Dina Meyer who uh, plays Jane. So first off, when I saw her, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a blast from the past. Where do I know her from? And then I thought about it. And I was like, is that the, the, the woman from Starship Troopers? And I looked it up and it is. I, uh, she was also in Dragonheart. So for a series of a few years, when I was like 12, 13, 14, I was watching these movies. She was like the lead in them. Um, and she was always playing like a very sexualized character. Um, and I was at an age where that was very important. So to that me. she was your sexual awakening. Was she was she was one of the like. You know, and like, and honestly, I had kind of forgotten. And this was this movie reminded me of that. So, like, you know, props to her for that, I guess. And I'm sorry to get like kind of weird about it, but like, it is the fact that that happens for lots of guys. You know, when you're a certain age and you see certain movies, um, Dina Meyer was that for me. I think everyone like sort of yeah finds a crush, like a celebrity crush or whatever, growing up. Yeah, she she so she was one of them. And so I'm look, I'm watching this movie, and I, like, I immediately have a like a fondness for her. And I'm like trying to pay attention to her as an actor and the performance and the character. And I'm like, what have they done to this character? Apparently, Molly Millions is like considered incredibly complex and interesting character. And I really liked her in the, in the story. She kind of steals the show. Um, and they, they have like stripped down that character to just like certain base points. And then she just like she doesn't have any uh, discernible arc in this movie. She all of a sudden kisses Johnny Mnemonic towards the end of the film. It comes out of nowhere because after that point, I didn't think they had a romantic relationship at all. And it felt like they were like, well, we got to have romance. 
shoehorn it in guys it was crazy too because like i think her arc happened in the first like five minutes she's like i want to be a bodyguard and then he's like no yeah you're right that was she had some story and then it yeah and then it was like all right she's good we're good with her let's completely subsumed by johnny yeah who's okay we i gotta let you read some more some more plot i guess before i get into this but i i I was just i couldn't believe what i was seeing in this movie a little bit like how does this movie get made I want to ask you, did you did you feel similar to me to where it's a bad movie, but you enjoyed watching it? Or did you just both like bad and you hated watching it? I was so frustrated because I just read the story, which is so good. And I had this memory of the movie that this was not this was not the movie I remembered. Mm -hmm. So those two things were working against it. The movie is bad. It looks ugly. um, And I was so frustrated that I'm like, this movie should look cool. Like you're working with like one of the coolest aesthetics in all of film. And yet somehow this movie looks terrible. Um, So I was so frustrated. It was hard for me to have a good time. But I will say, like, I was laughing at some of the stuff like about the tech. And I was it it was some of the characters were so over the top, like like Lundgren's character that I was able to have fun with it. I was very frustrated with Keanu, though. I'm like, I know you can do so much better than this. And it felt like he was just delivering these one liners. And then the one moment he gets, which I'm going to jump to now where he gets to have like a moment to like express himself and talk. He stands up on a pile of like garbage or something. And he starts yelling about how he wants to have fucking room service. $10,000 and, hooker. And, and a $10,000 hooker and like be a pampered white boy. Like that's what he wants. And I'm like, yeah, great. Yeah. Like, now, yeah. yeah. I'm like, is this supposed to make me like you in any way? Like I want to, I want to ignore the world and be pampered and not have to deal with anything is what his whole rant is about. And that's the one time he gets to actually talk about himself basically. I'm like, this is, and, and then uh, ultimately not, he goes against that, ever. you know, he goes against yeah. that at the end and, you know, was willing to sacrifice himself or whatever, but we'll get to that. Um, yeah. But it doesn't make it any better that he says all this shit. Uh, and it just wasn't, it was like so broad. I don't know. Yeah. It just, I, I think it's really interesting to think about Keanu's career because, you know, he had like Bill and Ted and then he did like Point Break, which I fucking love Point Break. And I, and, and for, for again, not a fucking amazing film. He's pretty but, good in speed. Now, again, that's a movie I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember him being pretty good. But I it. think Speed is is similar to this kind of thing. Uh, and even Point Break, some of the some of Point Break, Keanu, and then he sort of like evolves uh, over the course yeah. of his career. Well, he, like, I, you can tell that he hadn't done The Matrix yet because apparently he learned how to like do action scenes in The Matrix and that became a staple of his <laughs> like yeah. fighting sequences, I think, in particular. Well, the guys who directed John Wick were the like stunt yeah. coordinators on The Matrix. So like, yeah, yeah. That, that definitely became a big thing for yeah, him. Because he, he is not that in this movie. I was like shocked at how, I, you know, because I'm used to Keanu being able to be a believable badass and here i was like not believing him at all as a badass people do forget the time period so keanu's been through some like awful tragedy in his life too so like that aside um there was a period of time between the the end of the matrix and like the john wick where he was doing like a bunch of like what you would expect liam neeson or someone like that to do like these random action films like that are going straight to video those kinds of things he was doing a lot of that and he would have a movie every now and again and then I think John Wick put him back on this. Yeah, I remember him doing some like art house indie stuff too. Yeah, I feel like in that yeah, time there period, are a few yeah. here and there, but but in terms of like his big blockbuster work, like he it, it was it was interesting to see how like he came back, especially the action stuff. Like it was like Matrix, and then there was a big gap, and he would do some straight to video kind of actiony movies, and then it would and then he did John Wick, and it was like he was like legitimized again as like an action hero. Action. I feel actor. like he's always been drawn to high concept like 
big sci-fi like yeah i don't know like I've, I've always kind of seen why he would do a movie i'm like i can kind of get why keanu would chose this movie to do usually not always but like usually there's something there that i kind of get yeah but again i haven't seen his entire <laughs> filmography so i'm sure there are exceptions to that some of us sometimes you just got to make a check i guess i think you, you if you went through his there's there's a period from like the end of matrix and constantine like there's like a dip until like you know john wick in like 2014 yeah yeah, yeah. No, I believe. I mean, I believe you. I mean, you got Bill and Ted in there, which I know a lot of people love. I'm, I'm not the biggest Bill and Ted fan. It's okay. I like Bill fine. and Ted, but Bill and Ted yeah. was early. That was the, one of the yeah, earliest things then, he did. And then again, recently. But it was kind of funny now that he's doing it again post all that. Yeah, I just to get to back to me enjoying this film. Uh, it was funny to me in a like, like a genuinely funny way. Like it wasn't okay. like a. Sometimes it's like they're so bad, you laugh at it. Bad acting, this kind of stuff. But like having the dolphin in the film, I was fucking yeah. cackling. That was pretty I, ridiculous. I like, like that. having the second half of this film is fucking crazy. Just the tech gets funnier to me. Like he goes into the internet and he's like pulling his way through the internet <laughs> yeah. and like fucking like making a long distance call on it. Like fucking moving <laughs> yeah. some shapes and it allows him access and stuff. Like, yeah. It was it was really funny and and like I, I really didn't regret watching the film. No, I, and I don't either. Ultimately, just because now I can realize that that movie I've had in my head for years is not the is not actually well, this movie. and it really puts into context like like perspective some of Keanu too, like a, a little piece of Keanu that I didn't have I now do, and like between this, The Matrix, and Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, like he's pretty like he's cemented himself as like this like cyberpunk absolutely yeah yeah he's so important to that community and now and it's it's wild to think about like this was the first one this was his first step in there and it wasn't <laughs> great no all right so this next section here johnny and jane reached the low-tech base and learned from j-bone that jones is a dolphin once used by the navy which can <laughs> which can help decrypt the data in johnny's mind just as they start the procedure, Shinji and the Yakuza, Takahashi and his security forces, and the street preacher all attack the base. But Johnny, Jane, J-Bone, and the other Lotechs are able to defeat all three forces. I just love that you're laughing while reading the summary. <laughs> Takahashi, Takahashi turns over a portion of the encryption key before he dies. But this still is not enough to fully decrypt the data. And J-Bone tells Johnny that he will need to hack his own mind with Jones up. <laughs> the second attempt starts and and aided by the female ai johnny is able to decrypt the data and at the same time recover his childhood memories the ai is revealed to be the virtual version of johnny's mother what? who was also the founder of pharmacon angered at the at the company holding back the cure as J-Bone transmits the NAS cure information across the internet, Johnny and Jane watch from afar as the Pharmacon headquarters goes up in flames from the public outcry. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was unclear as to why it was burning at the end. Yeah. Oh boy, what a what a way to, what a way to finish this movie. It gets it gets so bizarre. <laughs> it's one of the most bizarre sequences of events I've ever seen. It's so crazy. Uh, there's like a dude in J Bone's crew that's just like dropping flaming cars on people yeah. and it drops it on their their like transportation at one point is just bonkers what a fucking crazy movie yeah so wild i mean it, honestly jane going in for the kiss came out of fucking nowhere yeah and it was just like i they had not set that up at all i was so surprised anyway whatever i guess yeah. we got we got to shoehorn run romance into every movie that's like a yeah. weird producer hollywood thing i think hopefully we're starting to get away from that these days um you know, like, uh, I, I just love to see, like, an occasional, like, friendship between a male character and a female character in a movie. Right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Shang-Chi, Shang I was, like, pretty happy with that, even though they were kind of hinting that maybe there was something romantic there. And I was like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> we need more of that, I think, in our movies. 
I, I gotta I gotta point out that there's a moment where he puts this big rig on his head and there's all these TVs behind him, but there's all these like big wires and it's not a shot it's not like identical, but I, I it has to be a um, reference to the iconic Neuromancer cover. Because the Neuromancer cover is iconic. It's 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 uh, the main character wearing a whole rig on his head. It's it's got all these wires. I think he's got a cigarette in his mouth, if I remember correctly. Um, it looks very cool, and if you haven't seen it, you should look it up. It's it's like one of my favorite covers I think there is in sci-fi. I love it. Just and you I, telling me that makes me think of the giant thing they plug in in the Matrix, the back yeah. of their head with the cable coming out. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. there you go. I, I don't think we talked enough about the fact that the dolphin not only exists and is like a thing from the Navy, but can also like hack <laughs> people's brains and when and then Johnny yeah. goes in to the internet again at the end or whatever he's trying it's, to... It's they, zipping around they, in the inside. Yeah, it's, fly, it's like flying around through the internet wherever <laughs> they're at and he's like this weird like 90s like pixelated extended version of himself yeah. and he's cloning himself in there and I'm like, this is Neo shit, right? Like he's like, he's, he's doing all these like crazy internet powers that he's the chosen one within the system. Oh my God. He cloned yeah, himself. It, uh, my wife walked out when that was happening and looked at the screen. She hadn't seen the movie and she was just like, <laughs> I think she just walked away. <laughs> yeah. Did she see like, a dolphin? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, oh God. It's so good. And they have him in the tiniest tank I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like it's all green. Can't and stuff. swim. Just float there. Uh, but he also can shoot fucking waves of some sort of force at people that like makes their skin p- bubble and pop and stuff. Well, I mean, he fucking melts the preacher man, right? Yeah. Well, he, he, and then there's like a, like electricity too, true, I guess yeah. that scorches him. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, the the preacher guy, like, there's this random moment where he, he gets to uh, Jane and he's, like, trying to, like, crucify her up on the, like, on something. Like, it was so, it was so funny to me. And he kept, show- he showed up and he literally said, like, gee, something, he said one of the most ridiculous lines I've ever heard one time when he's, like, Bible time or something crazy <laughs> like that. And, dude, like, I don't know the lines that that guy keeps saying. Like, I, I, I didn't have, I should have turned the subtitles on because I feel like I missed some of them. But, yeah, like, he popped out in front of the truck and he says something about like what he's he, like yeah it's free sinners or something yeah, like that like he always yeah, like, that's all he says constantly <laughs> every line is some sort of one-liner that in, involves jesus and you know it's usually some sort of like punny thing about how he's gonna you know power price christ compels you and he at hits you with point, something yeah, at and one like, point like he that. comes in and he's like he's like grace through him and and punishment <laughs> through me or something like that like all <laughs> kinds of stuff it was so fucking wild <laughs> yeah oh man it's so dumb but so I guess that that part is really fun. Uh, I kind of wish there was more of that. But um, so one thing I, I thought didn't really work at all for me was the the ghost in the machine mother who her consciousness has been uploaded into the company. Like, OK, I'm that's an interesting idea. But the way it plays out in the movie is she's like she's swirly and she like her her face takes like into a, a space where she can't be. It's really like trying to say that she is a ghost because she is doing things beyond the reach of her tech. And why does she look like that? Why does she sound like a ghost coming to you from the afterlife? She's a ghost in the machine. She's just in the machine. She should just be talking to you like normal. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And and it, it really leans into the ghost part of it instead of like thinking about how a consciousness inside of a system could actually be. And I don't know. 
Yeah. In the nineties, I would hope they would have had a better thought about that than what they ended up doing. And then the the reveal that it was his mom, I was like, Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. That is very obvious that that's going to be the case. That That's really why they did it. And that's why she's like blurry and stuff and like weird. And then you're like, what's going on? And yeah, it was at one point I kind of when they revealed that it was his mom, I was like, what the fuck? Why was she in the other system? And then I realized because she was like the Pharmacon rep or whatever she was before that she then could could, you know, be in all their systems and shit, whatever. She's like a virus herself. And. Oh, yeah, man. and that that's like a whole movie in and of itself, and you've you've just put it into this movie. So I bet you that's something from another Gibson novel that they've just put into here and did it really poorly. The idea of a like virus or something that's coming about by technology, I actually thought that was a cool idea early on. I was like, oh, okay, they're introducing a virus. They don't. They, people keep like not understanding how it's spreading. Yeah, um, there I, was I a was really cool. interesting anti-tech speech that Henry Rollins gives as this spider character. Where he's like, it's this fucking stuff, and we can't get rid of it, and it's killing everybody. And he's like pointing at like all the tech around the room. Right. Remember that? Yeah, but ultimately, like, all all it came down to was like they needed a threat for the cure, so that Johnny's information yeah. was important. But like, I but wish it would have fleshed that out that as, more. Like that was an interesting addition to this movie because I was like, it kind of changes the message of the movie a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how to feel about it, and I don't know if that ultimately is the right message for this movie. Like, I don't, I never took it as tech bad. I took it more as like people, people are inherently flawed and you give them access to these systems and they're going to find new ways to be flawed and find new ways to hurt each other through these systems. Whereas this kind of was like tech bad. If we could just get rid of tech, we'd all be fine. And I never took that to be the message of Gibson's like writing uh, the little bit that I've read. So it felt it felt weird. And I just wonder like when that got introduced and if that was actually Gibson at this point in his career, because, again, this is in the mid 90s. He he is still writing today and his his career has evolved over time. So, you know, I want to put that in full context, too. Yeah. Um, like I said, I kind of did like the idea of the virus. I liked some of that stuff early on. I just think it didn't land by the end of the story. It didn't it didn't seem like it was required or, or like explored enough. Right. Yeah. And I've even read uh, I read somewhere that Gibson said that if he could talk to himself as a because uh, he was about 35 um, when he when uh, Neuromancer first came out, he said, if I could talk to that version of myself, I don't know what I would say, but I definitely wouldn't loan him any money. Is what he said. <laughs> so <laughs> he has said basically that like he was a, just immature and that he has he has gone on to th- think about things differently now. So he's you know had a whole career where he has thought about this stuff. Um, and you know what? I I, I want to read more Gibson. Um, apparently these days I only read stuff for the podcast. So please make a Neuromancer adaptation so we can cover it and I can actually read this novel. Maybe I'll find a way to read it on my own one of these days. Um, but maybe I'll be scared because there'll be too many similarities in there to my own novel. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, when you were did, when you're playing Cyberpunk 2077, did you feel like you were like, I'm gonna back off for now just because of the Cyberpunk, <laughs> like, because well, it was similar? So or no? In a lot of ways, my my stories like got some Cyberpunk influences, but I'm like, not like yeah. not not as direct. It was just mm-hmm. that one. The eye thing was just so specific, and yeah. and and kind of like a, a weird detail that like is true. So anyway. It's just that one thing, but like, yeah, it's like I'm obviously writing with cyberpunk influence, and I know that, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm leaning into that, right? Right. Like, it's, yeah. I'm aware of that. But anyway, um, about this, I think it's come time to uh, 
judge which one was better. Um, I think the story is, I don't know, a thousand times better than the movie, something like that. It's way, way, way better, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, you have made me perhaps see some some comedy that exists in the film, which does elevate it, I guess, a little bit. Um, but yeah, this it's the story was was very good. It's not the best story I've ever read, but it was very good. And I like the writing style. This movie was bad. Yeah. So I'm not typically the person that likes to watch bad. I don't like to watch bad movies to laugh at them, really. Yeah. Like I watch a bad movie and I normally walk away with like, you know, some, you know, bits of wisdom. I'm like, oh, OK, I don't I didn't like that. File that away for later. But this was a rare case where like, you know, I think they were earnestly making a film. I think they were doing it. I think that the studio input was very obvious and probably fucked up a lot and maybe even made it ridiculous, as ridiculous as it was. But um, reading William Gibson's story, like there's, there, it is pretty fucking wild and out there. And, and I like that it went to those places and, and then learning, obviously, that he is this, you know, this forefather of this genre. Um, I do feel a little bad for Robert Longo, but at the same time, the director, but at the same time, I think maybe he didn't want to be a f- filmmaker necessarily or or i don't know you know it seemed like he had a lot of other stuff going on that he was really successful at maybe this experience soured him to the whole thing maybe you know if he he really felt like he couldn't he didn't have control and it was taken away from him and you know i can see that i can see that making someone go fuck it i'm not gonna do that again yeah especially when you can be the only person you have to answer to in some other medium um but so yeah i'm definitely taking this story i think the keanu's like early charm still couldn't save this movie it was weird it was jarring the the world was weird it just you know it was all the laser whip stuff wasn't nearly as interesting as i, I remember yeah because again that was they, in the movie that doesn't exist they uh, sliced up that one uh what's his name ralphie yeah. and it looked looked pretty cool i guess yeah, but that was about, about it. it that's about it the but i will remember the second half for how insane it was and so i guess that's you know notable yeah all right man i mean it was fun to get back to uh our bread and butter kind of stuff um, we're going to announce our next project at the end here in a minute. Um, I do want to remind you one last time, please check me out at the Flights of Foundry convention. Uh, you can find it online. It's an all virtual convention, free to attend. And look me up on there and you can find me. I will be on a panel at 8 p.m. Pacific on Saturday and be doing a reading at 8 p.m. Pacific on Sunday. If you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Uh, wherever you're listening because it does help get the word out there and uh, keeps this podcast going yeah that would be awesome Uh, also if you like the podcast another thing you could do is consider supporting us on patreon we have a bunch of bonus content on there including our most recent episode which was on the egg by andy weir which is a short story and short film Um, so if you like sci-fi stuff definitely check that out we had a lot of fun talking about it heady concept really interesting uh stuff to talk about so we'd love to have you on there that's patreon.com slashing to film and make sure to connect with us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film okay so i think it's time to announce our next project we are following up this one week short story film combo with another one week short story film combo um it's a good way to get in a few more projects we we felt like we weren't doing enough as far as like frequency of projects this year so we wanted to get a few quick ones in um and this is another one that i'm excited for and that is the short story where are you going where have you been by joyce carol Oates, which was adapted into a film called smooth talk yeah i know 
literally nothing about this story. Good. So I'm excited to go in and, and read about it. And I've heard, actually, I guess the one thing I do know is that it's rated somewhat well on, uh, you know, review platforms. Yeah, so I told good. you that apparently this movie is well regarded. I have not seen the film. I have read the story in school. I loved it at the time. I'm curious to reread it and see how I feel about it now. Um, and, you know, Joyce Carol Oates is an important writer we can talk about. Um, so that part is really cool. And I'm excited that this movie apparently is good. So stoked to watch it. Um, we are hoping to have a special guest on. So stay tuned for that. Um, and until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.